In the classic work by Augustine titled Confessions, Augustine begins his autobiography with the words, Our heart is restless until it rests in you. According to Augustine, the core experience of the human heart since the fall has been the heart's unending restlessness. Left alone, the heart never finds the satisfaction it craves. The heart moves from object of love to object of love as each object in turn fails to answer the heart's deepest needs. And that was certainly true of my experience before Jesus saved me. I was in the ninth grade when I, when I thought I had found the object of, of love that would finally satisfy my cavernous heart. That object was the basketball. I wasn't much of an athlete, you can ask Dan, who went to school with me in seventh grade. I wasn't much of an athlete at the time, but I was tall. And so I tried out for the basketball team in the ninth grade, and, and I wanted to be on the team so badly, and I was cut. And I was one of like the, the, like the two boys who, who didn't make the freshman or JV team. And my heart was crushed, and I was shattered, and after a couple of months, I had a choice to make. I could just give up the dream to make the basketball team, or I could practice as hard as I could and try out again my sophomore year. I chose the latter option. And every day I practiced with everything I had. I had like 2% athletic ability, and I maximized it to, to the, best of, the best I could. Making the team would give me purpose, I thought. Being on the team would give me identity. It would give me social credit, social status. But most importantly, I thought an orange ball and a metal hoop could fill my empty heart. Sophomore year came, tryouts were held, and the day finally came when Coach Brumsickle put up the final team list outside his classroom door. I walked nervously to, down the hallway to the class. I looked on the list, and then I saw my name. And immediately after seeing my name, I was suddenly struck with a jolt of bewilderment, bewilderment about what had happened inside of me in that moment. And it was this. My heart was just as empty after I found out I made the team as it was before. Has that ever happened to you? You were told, you were led into believing, you were given the impression that if some object was of love was sought after and obtained, your heart would finally find rest and satisfaction. Get good grades, go to the right school, work in the occupation of your dreams, fall in love, find that, find that someone who will love you as much as you love them. And so you work, and you dream, and you play, you fight, you run, you change direction, you recalibrate, you come up with a new plan, a new goal, new ambition. The day I found out I made the basketball team, it was just the beginning of years, the same kind of surprises. Augustine's description of the heart's unending restlessness, the heart moving from object of love to object of love, each object obtained over and over again, failing to satisfy the heart's deepest needs, was the story of my life. It was the perfect summary of my autobiography. How about you? Does my story sound a little bit like yours? 
Is there anybody here this morning looking for satisfaction that is able to fill the depths of your heart's restlessness? Is there anybody here who has forgotten where full and lasting satisfaction can be found? Well, if that's you, then Psalm 36 is the treasure map you've been looking for. And so I want to ask you to turn to your Bibles to Psalm 36. You have Bibles under your seats. If you want to, you want to take out a Bible uh, right under your seat, the, the translation is very similar, so you can look at that. Let me read Psalm 36 for you. David writes, empowered by the Spirit, for the choir director of the servant of Yahweh of David, transgression declares to the ungodly within his heart, there is no dread of God before his eyes, for it flatters him in his eyes, for one who discovers iniquity and hate it. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has, he has ceased to consider to do good. He, divide, he devises wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. Your loving kindness, O Yahweh, is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the sky. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like a great deep. O Yahweh, you save man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O God, and the sons of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They are satisfied with the richness of your house, and you give them to drink of the river of your delights, for with you is the fountain of life, in your light we see light. Continue your loving kindness to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of pride come upon me, and let not the hand of the ungodly drive me away. There the workers of wickedness have fallen. They have been thrust down and cannot rise. Psalm 36 is about satisfaction and where it can be found. In the first four verses, David discusses the way the unbeliever seeks wholeness in sin. In the rest of the psalm, David celebrates the incomparable delight and satisfaction of knowing God. Psalm 36 compares two categories of people. There are those who indulge in their sin, and there are those who indulge in all that God offers in himself. And so I have two points for you to consider this morning. Point number one, finding rest in the mirage of sin's desert oasis. Number two, drinking from the river of the Garden of Eden. Point number one, finding rest in the mirage of sin's Desert Oasis, verses 1 through 4. If I were to paint a picture of Augustine's uh, commentary about the restlessness of the human soul, it would be of travelers in a desert, they're trudging forward, they're hot, they're tired, they're wanting to quench their thirst, until one of the tra travelers in the group yells out uh, about an oasis way out yonder, and you see it, and it, and it looks good to you, and people walking opposite the direction you're walking toward uh, tell you they, they just returned from this oasis, and they say to you, oh man, let me tell you how to get there, this is what you need to do, this is how far you need to walk, these are the for the sacrifices you need to make and the personal qualities you need to have. Here's a book you can read about it, uh, $9.99. Uh, but what they all think about is this. Was the trip worth it? Was it worth the sacrifice? Did the oasis finally quench your thirst? See, everybody in the group who gets to ask that, in, that question, the answer is just assume. And when you get there, the, the oasis 
isn't as wonderful as it first appeared. There's a spring of water, but it's not enough for everybody. The water is dirty. It's mixed with a lot of sand and dirt that you have to spit out. Some people get sick. There are skeletons of people around you, those who found the oasis and who died after finding it. And get this, you leave the oasis just as thirsty as you were before. So you move on to the next oasis. You believe the same kind of stories you heard before about the previous oasis, and you find another group to travel with, and surely this group, they can't be wrong, but when you get there, it's the same deal. And so you wander forward, ever searching, ever searching, ever ever being disappointed, still thirsty, still starving, and what's more pathetic, you never question whether or not you're even headed in the right direction. You never question it, you can see clearly. You never doubt the, the judgment of the people that you're traveling with. So you press on deeper and deeper into the heart of the desert. Verses 1 through 4 gives a detailed description of this person in the desert wandering, looking for, looking for something or someone to, to quench his thirst. And, and verses 1 through 4 tells us why this person is so lost in the desert of this world. Verse number 1, the desert wanderer has a cruel and powerful master. Verse 1 says, transgression declares to the ungodly within his heart. The reason why people can't escape this desert of despair, continually parched and thirsty, is because transgression declares to the ungodly within his heart. The word declares is an interesting word. It's used about 400 times in the Old Testament, and in almost literally every instance, the phrase is this, Something, something, something declares the Lord. Almost every usage of the 400 times, the word declares is used with the subject of God. It's a declaration from God. But here in verse 1, it's not God who declares, it's transgression who declares. It's as if transgression or sin is this man's God. It's his authority. Sin is the power that runs his life. And, and transgression, according to verse 1, it declares like a God within his heart. The language that sin speaks is his own desires. In other words, the desires of our sin have all power and authority over this person's life. Theologians call this spiritual death. Paul says in in chapter 2, verse 1, he calls this that we were dead in our sin. Verse 1 is, is describing this, this dynamic of total depravity. And, and total depravity doesn't mean you're, you're, you're as thoroughly depraved as you possibly could be. It doesn't mean you don't know the difference between good and evil or that, that you indulge in every form of sin there is. What it does mean is that your corruption, what it does mean is that your pollution extends to every part of your human nature. Yes, you can do, do, do good things, you can do noble things, like die for a war for your country, you can be a firefighter who, who risks his life to save children from a burning building. But when sin rules over you, like verse 1 here says, the implication is that there is nothing fundamentally you do that pleases God because there is no genuine desire in your heart to please God. When sin rules over you like a God, you are unable to change in your own strength your fundamental love of self and love of sin to love for God. You can do good works, but you can do, you can do no sort of spirit. 
spiritual good where there is a genuine motivation just to please the Creator. And it's this ownership of sin over your heart, this is what alienates sinners from God. This is why the ungodly feel this pervasive emptiness. That nothing you can do, it can, there's some things you can dull the pain, you can kind of ignore it for a while, but you know it's, it's still there. If you pay attention a little bit, it's still there no matter what you do. I remember in my early 20s, before I knew Christ, I would, I would go to a club, I would get intoxicated, I would, I would, I'd, I would, I would drive back, back home, and I would have the music blaring, and yet, the hole of emptiness was still there. I could feel it. And that emptiness is the result of separation from God. It points to a spiritual reality that our sin turns us away from being satisfied by the Creator so that we, in response, turn toward the creation for the source of life's meaning. But there's nothing in creation that can fill an immaterial, infinite heart. See, food can't satisfy the heart because the heart isn't a physical organ. It's like a stomach where you feel full. The heart is, the heart is immaterial. It's infinite. Nothing limited, nothing temporal can fill that hole. When transgression rules over you like a dictator, verse 1 says, there is no dread of God before his eyes. There's no fear of God. Uh, you talk to people down on the street and, and you talk about judgment, they're not afraid of judgment. You talk about hell, they think of just being petty and mean. Uh, hell is, is, is just this theory that we don't take very seriously. The ungodly really believe they will never be held accountable for their sin. This is what transgression does to the ungodly. Instead, verse 2, sin flatters him in his eyes. You ever been flattered before? You ever say, oh, wow, that was great. It's like, you know, wasn't it? Oh, George, you know, you look so good. I, I looked in the mirror, I don't look that good. Sin lies to us. It tells us things that are untrue about us. It tells things that are untrue about our reality. It presents, things, it presents the situation much better than it really is. Sin is a used car salesman that tells you the lemon in front of you is a luxury car. Sin is a politician who promises you a better tomorrow. Jonathan Edwards lists some of the ways that sin flatters, flatters the ungodly within his art, number one. Sin flatters you with the secret hope there is, that there is no such thing as heaven or hell. Number two, sin flatters people with the lie that death is a great way off and you will always have time to trust Christ. Sin flatters you by telling you that you live a moral life and because you do, do you will not be damned. Sin flatters by telling you that being part of a church that preaches the gospel, where many have been converted, that will make it easier for you to be saved just by your association with these people. Sin flatters with good intentions. You just need a little bit more freedom to sin for a few more years, and then you will repent. Sin flatters you when you think you're, you've done, you're done with what you have ought to have done, that you've already contributed a lot toward your salvation when you haven't really done that much. 
Sin flatters you when you think you can earn your salvation. Sin flatters the sinner when he thinks he's converted, even though there's nothing in his life that would indicate a genuine side of conversion. And the flattery of sin, verse 2 says, prevents the ungodly, look, verse 2, to discover his iniquity and hate it. Rather than experience God and know firsthand the purging pain of the exposing, cleansing power of holiness, the wicked, wicked do not fear God, they let their sin flatter themselves, and as a result, they don't recognize the depths of their own sinfulness. But if you were to see sin as sin, sin as sin really is, if you were to discover the sinfulness of sin, the assumption David makes in verse 2 is that you would hate your sin. If you could just see it for what it was, you would hate it. You would be like the tax collector, beating his breast, saying over and over, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. But instead of hating sin, you justify your sin, you defend your sin, you hold on to it, you take pride in it, you redefine your sin, you love your sin, you make your sin your identity. So what begins in the heart in verses 1 and 2 finds expression in word and deed in verses 3 and 4. In verses 1 and 2, the, the ungodly, he flatters himself with, with his own defined moral system where he comes out approved and, and, and acceptable, but his words betray his self-delusion. Verse 3, the words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. We think that we're good people because we, we've never harmed anybody, we've never taken a bat and, and hurt somebody, but but we forget all the pain we cause with our words, don't we? We forget all the people we've wounded deeply because of something unkind we said. We forget we lie all the time. People who lie, what? The liars. Liars aren't good people. You murder one person, what are you? You're a murderer. If you lie once, what are you? You're a liar. Verse 3, he is, he is seized to consider to do good. Verses 1 through 4 is a downward spiral, spir, sp, a spiral to the depth of the value of sin. Verse 3, David says, it, it's not that he, he never had a chance. There was a time he considered good, but he has ceased to consider it now. He considered, he considered turning to faith in, in the Lord. He considered repenting. He, he considered the following Christ and laying down his life. He, he did that before, but now he ceased doing that. So verse 2, verse 3 especially describes the ungodly's lifestyle during the day. But what about at night? What about at night when it's time to think? At, at night when the lights are off and the silence lets, your, let, lets you hear yourself think, look at verse 4. He devises wickedness upon his bed. He devises wickedness upon, upon his bed. David isn't saying that this person is a bank robber thinking of, of, of how he can rap, rob his local bank. He's describing a, a person a worldly person just making their plans, 
without any concern for God's glory or pleasure, without any thought of how do I advance God's agenda in the world. He thinks about just his own, his own thing, his own, his own, his own goals, his own schedule. See, what you think about when you're by yourself, it puts you on a pathway. It leads you to a destination. Look, verse 4, he sets, he sets himself on a path that is not good. Like all of us here, we're on a pathway, we're on a road, and that road is the result of our thoughts that we've thought about for years and years on our bed. Thinking about what I should do tomorrow, thinking about my plans next month, thinking about my goals in a year or two. What we contemplate in unoccupied moments the way of life we have chosen to live, what we reject and what we accept, all those things point to what we regard as sacred and ultimate. Everybody has a God. Everybody has a God. There is no neutrality in the world. And what you think about when you're alone reveals who you worship, yourself, and the God of Scripture. Verse 4 ends with this, he does not despise evil. And this is a warning for us that when evil comes our way, when we're tempted by evil, that we shouldn't consider the immediate pleasure of the sin. Instead, think about the cost of that evil. Think about what it will take away from you. Don't think about the immediate pleasure of the hour. Think about the consequences tomorrow and next week. Think about who it will hurt. Think about your family. If you want to reject the evil that bombards your mind every day, you must look past the momentary pleasure it offers and think more long term. When we move from a description of the ungodly and what they worship to the object of David's own devotion, we go from the baseness of the wicked to the contemplation of the glory of God in verses 5 through 12. Point number two, drinking from the river of the Garden of Eden, verses 5 through 12. And what a contrast the content of verses 1 through 4 is compared to verses 5 to 12. And, and, what is the, and the purpose for this, does it, does it, does it say, doesn't describe the godly, the ungodly man and the, the ungodly person. It, it describes the ungodly man and a holy God. Because he wants us to, to not try to find escape by comparing our lives to the worst person that we know. Right? If we think we're, we're good people, because we try to find the worst person in the world, and we say, well, I'm not as bad as him, so I must be good. And, and God is saying in, this, in, Psalm, in Psalm 36, don't compare yourself to the lowest common denominator. Don't compare yourself to a serial killer. Compare yourself to the, to the sublimity, sublimity of the character and nature of God instead. That's the standard. He doesn't grade on a curve. 
God compares our lives not to the worst of the worst, but to, to, the, to himself. He's the standard. And who God is will either terrify you or it will draw you near to himself. In verses 5 through 12, we, we discover the real oasis of satisfaction. And in verses 5 and 6, you're going to see the, the reference to God in two times. In verse 5, in that first statement, and in verse 6, in that, in that last statement. And in the Hebrew, it's very pronounced. The very first word in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew, uh, in verse 5 is Yahweh, and the very last word in the Hebrew of verse 6 is Yahweh. It's an inclusio. So an inclusio is where you have these two outside parallel statements, and these outside parallel statements, they summarize what comes in between. So verses 5 and 6, is, it's about Yahweh. It's about God. Yahweh is God's personal name that he gave to Israel in Exodus. It's translated Lord in many of your Bibles. In my translation, it's just given in the English the way it's pronounced in the Hebrew, Yahweh. And Yahweh, the name Yahweh essentially means when, when, the, when the Hebrews were, were about to talk to Pharaoh and, and when, Mo, when uh, Moses uh, went to, 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 the, uh, to the Jewish people under bondage and, and he said, God, uh, I'm going to go to them and they're, they're going to ask you uh, uh, what my name is. What should I tell them? And, he said, and God says to them, I am who I am. Uh, that's just the verb form of the name Yahweh. And God was saying, because the context of Egypt was that you had a God of the sky, you had a God of the moon, you had a God of the fields, and it was, you know, God was, you could put him in your category. Oh, there's a God of the river, I can put him in the gap category. And God was saying, you know, tell the people, this is, tell the people, this is my name, I am. I am. Like, you can't put me in a box. You, you can't put me in a category. You can't bring me down on your level. I am that I am. I am who I will be. You can't define him the way you can, you can, you can with any other thing in creation. You, you can't label him. And this is why in the second commandment, God says, do not make any idol, do not make a, 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 a representation of me, any creaturely idol, because I'm nothing like that. And that holds true for each of his perfections. Every perfection of God transcends our personal experience and definition. And David begins in verse 5 describing the, perfect, the perfection of God's loving kindness. He says in verse 5, Your loving kindness, O Yahweh, is in the heavens. We think your loving kindness is kind of like on this level, but no, it, is, it, it reaches to the heavens, to the highest of the highest. The word loving kindness is has said in the Hebrew. Different Bible version, versions tra uh, translate that word different ways. Sometimes it translates it as steadfast love. Uh, here it translates the word loving kindness. Uh, sometimes it's translated mercy. But but I think the best way to translate the Hebrew word has said is the is 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 by using the word grace. Grace. And why do I prefer that? Translation. Well, because in the Gospel of John, John says this in John 1.17, the law was given through Moses, and then he says this, 
grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And that phrase, grace and truth, it comes from Exodus 34, when God passed by Moses, who was hiding in the cleft of rock, and Moses wrote this when that happened, Yahweh, Yahweh, God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. And so John replaces the word has said, or loving kindness, for the Greek word for grace. So according to John, from his understanding, has said was the Old Testament version of New Testament grace. And that means verse 5 could read this way, Your grace, O Yahweh, it extends to the heavens. Your, your grace is amazing. It is amazing. It is amazing grace. And has said in the Old Testament, it has the idea of being delivered. It's, it's, it's to those who cannot deliver themselves, who, who cannot save themselves, and God shows has said. He delivers us from a situation where we could never rescue ourselves. Specifically, the word is actually more technical to, to that. It is tied to the Davidic covenant. In 2 Samuel 7, when God promises David a Messiah, when, when God prophesies of the Christ who is to come, has said is the word used to summarize all those promises. And that is how it's being used in verse 5, believe it or not. David is thinking about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. One day he looked up at the sky, at the height of heavens, and then he said to himself, that is how high and how wide the grace of the promise of the Messiah is. From David's vantage point, there was no higher place in the heavens. To David, there was no greater grace than the promise of Jesus Christ. And so he puts the two together in one thought and phrase. And he writes it down in verse 5. Your loving kindness, O Yahweh, is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Sometimes it's translated truth, and it means that God is committed to the truth. He's committed, he's committed to his word. If he said it, he's going to do it. You don't have to remind God. You don't have to be like my wife. When, when my wife says, hey, did you do that? I say, honey, if I said I'd do it, I'd do it. I said I'd do it a year ago, so I'm going to do it, right? Not like that. He does it. He's determined to provide a savior for our sin. That faithfulness reaches to the skies. There are no boundaries, no limits. David says this over and over again. He says, Psalm 57, 10, for your loving kindness is great to the heavens and your truth to the skies. He says in Psalm 103, 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness to those who fear him. Charles Spurgeon describes grace here with these words, when we can measure the heavens, then we can measure the mercy of the Lord. For his own servants, especially in the salvation of the Lord Jesus, he has displayed grace higher than the heaven of heavens and wider than the universe. God's grace is rich and full and limitless, but get this, so is his righteousness. Look at verse 6. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Think Mount Everest. Think the Himalayan mountains. Yes, God's grace is rich, it's full, it's limitless, but so is his righteousness. See, some people who call themselves Christians, they don't seem to understand that. They agree, oh yes, God is gracious. He, 
His grace is high as in the heavens, but then they're going to turn around and say, oh, God's righteous standards? Oh, 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 oh we can bring that down. Uh, they'll say grace is certain, yes, but God's righteousness, that's malleable. Yes, grace is like the stars of the sky, but God's righteousness is like silly putty. It, they, they change with the times. They evolve. They describe the many to be grace, and they, when they think of God's righteousness, they, when they think of God's righteousness, they call it humanistic. But, but David says, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. That your standards, they never change. They're impregnable. They're immovable. They're immense. Like when you're standing at the base of Mount Everest, nobody ever says, okay, I'm going to move this. Nobody says, oh, I'm just going to walk around. I'm going to walk around the mountain range. Nobody ever says, hey, hey, let's just take a hike up there and we'll go down the other side. In the first century, there's no ropes and backpacks and thermal gear. You don't have traveling donkeys and Sherpas and, and guys and oxygen masks. No. You, you run into a mountain range like this and you say, you know what? we got to turn back. Spurgeon says, right across the path of every unholy man who dreams of heaven stands the towering Andes of divine righteousness which no unregenerate sinner can ever climb. Yes, Jesus will forgive you, but only if you admit that your righteousness could never save you. He will forgive you, but only if you admit, admit that you don't come to close to any righteous standard that could somehow earn your salvation. His righteousness is like the mountains of God. How can you climb over that? They're like the Himalayan mountains. How, how are you going to get over that? God's judgments, verse 6, are like a great deep. These are the decisions God, these are the decisions that God has made. You'll never understand the depth of his wisdom. They're always good. They're always right for the believer. Paul says in Romans 11.33, how unsearchable are his judgments. And, and yet these perfections of God, they're infinite, they're, they're, they're awesome, they're, they're magnificent, they're sublime. But look at verse 6. Yahweh, you save man and beast. They're not... God's attributes are not abstract platitudes, but personal ways that he relates to man and beasts. For every mouse that escapes a cat all the way to the thief on the cross who Jesus promised heaven to, God, God's grace descends from the height of the heavens to the corner of Ninth Street in Maine to save man and beast. And so in verses 5 and 6, David describes the perfections of God. And now in verses 7 through 10, David describes his personal experience with those perfections of God. You can know this God personally. Verse 7, David says, How precious, how precious is your loving kindness, O God. How precious is your grace. The word precious was used to describe the main, the main jewel stone of David's crown. 
Grace was precious to David. David's most valuable possession was grace. Do you have anything that, that's precious to you? For my wife and I, our two little boys, they are precious to us. And we, we, we are doting middle-aged parents. We're proud of it. And we're watching them, and we are paying attention to every detail of their lives. My wife says, hey, George, put on the jacket, put on the sunscreen, watch out for the ticks. There's ticks everywhere. And I'm the same way to her, you know, when she leaves us. Honey, make sure you hold her hand in the parking lot. Don't lose George. Don't lose him. Bring him back. His grace is precious to you. His grace is valuable to you. His is grace your, your greatest treasure? The grace of forgiveness, the grace of knowing Christ, the grace of heaven, the grace of eternal life. You, you see, you can tell how precious grace is to a person by the way they live. Like you, when you walk into our house, you know our kids are precious because everything in the house is like dedicated to them. Grace humbles you. Grace fills you with joy. Grace fuels love for Christ. Grace empowers obedience to God's word. To respond to grace with this indifferent, continuous, unrepentant, sinful life is to ignore grace. It is to say, I, I think grace is cheap. I think grace is worthless. God's perfections are more than theological realities to ponder. We can find real safety in who God is. Look at verse 7. The sons of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. The picture of little chicks, baby chicks of an eagle, finding their protection under the, the shadow of the father's wings. God is not less than a doctrinal statement. He is not less than a great creed of, of, of church history, but he's a lot more than that too. We find our deepest satisfaction in him, verse 8. They are satisfied from the richness of your house, and you give them to drink of the river of your delights. The Verse 8 and 9, the word satisfied and drink, they're both, they're both words, for, for, they're both terms for drinking. The, the, the idea is that the, the Lord's fullness of his being is poured out for his thirsty and parched people. In, in David's day, the greatest concentration of God's presence was found in the heart of the tabernacle. It was found in the temples. If you wanted to come close to God, the closest you could get to him was in the tabernacle. And this is where God manifested dwelt with his people. Everything about the tabernacle was supposed to remind you of the Garden of Eden because that was where God first dwelt together with man. When David wanted more of God, he went to the tabernacle to offer a sacrifice through a priest who would enter into the holy place on David's behalf. Everyone who was there, the people, the priests, they were there to worship God. And so on David's best days, when he wanted satisfaction, he didn't go to the movies, he didn't go to the mall, he went to God's house to worship together with all of God's people. It was at God's house where he was satisfied with the richness of God's presence. It was at, at the house of God where he says, you gave them to drink of the river of your delights. The word delights is the same word for Eden. The, the closest that David ever got to Eden on earth was in God's house with God's people. 
David says in Psalm 84.10, for, for better is a day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be at church than a thousand days in Hawaii. I'd rather be at church than a ten thousand days in Paris. Psalm 27.4 says, One thing I ask from Yahweh that I should seek, that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life to behold the beauty of Yahweh. I just want to set up a camp and live here. Pastor kind just kind of make a little space in the corner, kind of stay there. There's no place I'd rather be in all the world than on church on Sunday morning. Because that is where the greatest manifestation of God's presence in the world today is found. There is there in a group of individuals all dwelt by the Holy Spirit that you find the presence of the Spirit in a measure you could never find watching a, a, a sermon on YouTube in your pajamas on, in the morning. There at your local church, they pray together with a force and power you could never pray on your own. That we sing in a way with the volume, with the breadth, with the depth, with the harmony. You can never sing to God in, in the shower. We listen to the word with the kind of clarity and precision you could, you could never just get reading the Bible by yourself. We fellowship together. We experience a rich closeness and indescribable, indescribable bond be, between people that, 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 that look nothing like yourself culturally, a bond, an intimacy, a closeness, a closeness that no bar or frat party could ever imitate. Before God saved me, I tried to fill my empty heart at the court, in the gym, at the clubs, in the bars, in the Lakers game, in the office, in the library, at the beach, in the mountains. Little did I know that one day, whatever overflowing satisfaction for every corner of my heart would be discovered at my local church. If Sunday isn't your favorite day of the week because church is on that day, you got to ask yourself, why isn't it? If Sunday morning, church on Sunday morning, is the day you dread the most, I don't know what to tell you. Because verse 9 says this, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. And the implication in verse 9 is that there's nowhere else in the world where you can find this fountain of life. You can read it this way, for you is the only fountain of life. There is no other fountain of life anywhere else outside of Christ. In verse 9 you have two terms, two, two pictures, life and light. Life and light, they go together in the Bible because in creation... The first characteristic of life was light, and God said, let there be light. There would be no life without the light of day one of creation. John 1, 4 speaks of Jesus Christ this way. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness did not, did not apprehend it. Death, repre death represents, I mean, darkness represents death and chaos, but light represents the essence of life, life in Scripture. When God saves his people, we are delivered from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We go from spiritual death to spiritual life. And then the light of Christ illuminates our path. It illuminates our way. Psalm 19 says, your word is a light to my path. In God's light, the 
the believer, the believer is, under, is able to understand spiritual things. It is only by the light of Christ can I, can I know what is good and evil. It is only by the light of Christ do I understand what is noble and right and pure and holy. It is only by the light of the gospel do I understand what is true and, and false, what is beautiful and ugly. I could, I could never see Jesus by the light of my understanding, and yet it's only by the light of the gospel that I can understand who I really am as a person. In verse 10, David prays that the grace described in verses 5 through 9 wouldn't simply be what he admires and revels in, but he, he prays in verse Verse 10, continue your loving kindness to those who know you. God, activate this grace. Draw out more of this grace in my life. Keep bringing grace into play. Make grace always relevant in my actual circumstances. Because grace has to be more than a theory. It has to be more than a song you sing on Sunday morning. Grace must be your strength. Grace must be your daily sustenance. People described in verses 1 through 4 naturally hate the people who love the God described in verses 5 through 9. And so David prays in verse 11, Let not the foot of pride come upon me. Let not the hand of the ungodly drive, drive me away. Don't, don't let anybody ever make me ashamed of the gospel. Don't ever let God's enemies force me to hide my love for Jesus. Don't ever let persecution keep me from living for for Christ. And finally, verse 12, David says, There the workers of wickedness have fallen, they have been thrust down, and cannot rise. We go from the flattery of sin in verse 2 to the reality of God's judgment in verse 12. One day flattery ends, one day the blinds disappear, and you pay for the life you've lived. Psalm 36, with all its application for David's day, it looked forward to Christ a thousand years later. Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 36. He is the embodiment of grace and truth that reaches to the heavens and the skies. John 1.17 says, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The same two words in Found in verse 5. Jesus is the mountain. He is the, the Mount Everest of righteousness. When Jesus died on the cross, the centurion cried out, Certainly this man was righteous. Jesus is the temple. He is the, he is the tabernacle. Jesus said, Destroy this sanctuary, and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up three days later. Jesus is the river of Eden. He is the fountain of life. He said, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Jesus is the life of the world. He is the light of the world. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Psalm 36 is a treasure map where Jesus is found. It is a treasure map where satisfaction is guaranteed. Are you lost? Are 
in the desert searching for that next oasis. Psalm 36 says, you go another way. You can flee from the flattering of a sinful world. It says, turn from sin, turn to Christ, turn to Christ. Because there you can find true rest for your soul. You can stop, you can stop searching now because it's in the gospel. Rest is in, is in, is in this word. Rest and satisfaction is in Christ. Run to him. Open your heart to him. Bow your knee to him. And he will give you rest.